Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Today we're going to talk about major moves being made by the Taliban in preparation for the post-Civil War era, a deadly border skirmish between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, and we're going to talk about how the economic collapse going on in Lebanon may indeed alter the geopolitics of the Middle East. All that and more, coming up. get into the rapid fire news. So, Sudan is in consideration for the construction of a new Russian naval base in Port Sudan. That's their coastal city, which is along the country's Red Sea coastline. And the Red Sea being the body of water between Sudan and Saudi Arabia, if you find it on the globe. So that's where it is. Russia is trying to get a new naval base there. The deal in question would allow up to four vessels at any one time to be allowed to dock there. Uh, so basically, it's a limitation on how many ships are allowed to be there, probably for the sake of national sovereignty, because why would you want somebody to park their entire navy in your port? That wouldn't be, given the history of the country, that probably wouldn't be very um, welcomed. Uh, you know, colonialism and all. I'm sure a lot of countries would appreciate not being colonized or to have experiences, um, the memories of the experience be brought back up. But nevertheless, they're gonna, it looks like they're gonna allow the deal to go through. The deal was negotiated under their previous leader, um, but he was ousted, and which led to the current political crisis that they're in right now, which seems to be subsiding. Uh, given that they're moving forward with this deal. It seems like that political crisis is subsiding, which is good, because um, if Sudan had destabilized, they would have created a shatter belt along the entirety of Northeast Africa. But that's good. We'll, we'll hopefully that it lasts. Well, we'll hopefully. We'll hope that it lasts uh, for a pretty good long time. All right. So that's that. We have the protests and riots in Cuba, um, most notably in the capital city of Havana. Um, These riots being sparked by inflation and rising costs of living. These riots have continued to grow into what some have started calling an uprising. It remains to be seen if that's the case. Um, And we'll have to see how this development goes. Because it's gotten pretty big. So we'll, we'll keep our eyes on that and keep our eyes also on the sort of the fallout from uh, Haiti's government getting, a, their president getting assassinated. Uh, a couple of developments in, a, in the Caribbean. I almost called it the Mediterranean. Good thing I didn't call it that. Uh, meanwhile, the EU is ramping up pressure for Balkan countries to join. Uh, namely, they're pushing for the Western Balkan countries south of Croatia, so that would be, let me 
grab my good old handy dandy Google Earth for this. That would be, I believe, Bosnia, Serbia, Albania, or are they already a part of them? Albania, Kosovo, which its independence is recognized by most of the EU members, uh, with a select number of them choosing not to. Uh, what is it? Bulgaria and Spain being chief among those who don't recognize Kosovo. Um, so yeah, you have a lot of these these Western Balkan countries that the EU is now trying to integrate and assimilate uh, into the bloc, and they've made they've made a pretty strong push recently to do this. Why exactly they're pushing so hard now? I'm not entirely sure. But, but, we will, we'll see how it goes. I'm, I don't want to say that I'm not convinced it's going to work as much as I'll say that it's going to be difficult getting them in and probably more difficult once they're already in um, due to uh, long-standing issues with many Balkan nations, both between other Balkan nations and within their own borders due to differences in ethnicities and nationalities and tensions that, um, well, started a world war and have yet to be resolved. So, we'll see how they handle this move. In the EU, that is. And we'll keep our eyes on it. In other news, Iran's transportation ministry has been hit with a series of cyber attacks over a couple of days. We've talked. If I'm not mistaken, it was on Biden's big day out, uh, which was actually a big week out. We're not going to talk about it, but we're going to talk about what we talked about, where we, towards the end of that episode, I believe, we talked about cyber attacks and sort of how it's going to be extremely difficult to draw the line between what does and doesn't garner a military response. And when you have transportation, a key, key industry within a country, being hit with cyber attacks, is that worthy of uh, military action? Who knows? Um, but it's definitely causing problems. You do that. And I'd imagine, I'd imagine no, one's, no one in Iran is very appreciative of the fact that this is happening either. So we'll, we'll see how they respond. Um, but we're seeing an increase in cyber attacks in general. We're also seeing an increase in ways of tracking them back to their source as well, um, but not necessarily means of stopping them from happening. We'll have to see if that develops. But interesting development nonetheless. And to Iran's east, we have, in Afghanistan, the Taliban, who has continued their rapid advance across the whole of Afghanistan and now reportedly according to a couple Russian news agencies that they control about two-thirds of the border with neighboring Tajikistan which is to the country's north and they're now taking over key border crossings um, along Afghanistan's border with Iran which is to Afghanistan's west so to the north and the west, the Taliban is on uh, not just on the move, but they're dominating and controlling 
um, the border. We talked a couple weeks ago about how they took control of a key border pass into Tajikistan from Afghanistan. Now they control two-thirds of that border. So they're getting control of the borders, which effectively gives you control over who is and isn't allowed into the country. Uh, and when you have control over that, you are, what, two steps away from having control of the country in general? So, with Taliban victory seemingly inevitable, I won't say that it is, but they have massive momentum, and it doesn't look like their opposition is going to be able to rally in time or in force to stop them from taking control of the country. So, for now, I'm sort of moving into this contingency where we're going to treat the Taliban as if they were the official government of Afghanistan, and we're observing that the Taliban is also treating itself like the official government of Afghanistan because they've sent a political delegation to Moscow, um, probably to talk about migrants trying to leave the country and how they're going to keep a grip over the border because Russia is sort of sensitive to that sort of thing. Um, they're going to probably going to talk about anti-terrorism operations. Um, they've promised not to allow jihadist fighters to use Afghanistan as a base. And we'll see if they uphold that. Um, yeah, they're making moves and calls outside of Afghanistan and it's really looking like they're going to be the new governing force in the country. And as they make these delegations beyond their borders, they're establishing relations. And that those relations are going to provide international legitimacy towards their regime. And it'll be interesting to see how that, how that plays out, really. Because this is uh, Russia. So... That gives them def clout by default within all of the unofficial Russian republics. So that's everybody in the Caucasus, Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, all of them. So that's, uh, that's a pretty nice little handful of countries who will basically recognize you as being the official government of Afghanistan. And we'll see how they, how they handle their neighbors. Um, Pakistan and Iran being chief among them, because Tajikistan is uh, pretty preoccupied, and we'll we'll talk about that in just a moment when we get to the meat. M meanwhile, while we're kind of on the subject of the former Soviet space, there were elections held in Moldova, and ooh, yeah, elections held in Moldova. What can you say? Well, I don't know if. The elections are being held in Transitria, which is a really, really tiny um, state that exists between Moldova and Romania. But aside from the existence of that thing being very interesting itself, um, we're going to move on um, to Haiti. Haiti, their interim government, which is basically existing because their president got assassinated... Um, their interim government is now requesting a U.S. troop presence in the aftermath of said president's assassination. And they're going to be holding new elections to determine a new president. And they sort of want the U.S. there to keep everything safe. 
and, well, to oversee the election, some say. Well, we'll see how this goes. Uh, I'm down with it. But, um, you know, it's kind of sad that this has to happen. And no one wants their president to get assassinated. But um, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on this one. I'll say the Caribbean's gotten a little interesting lately. Though for all the wrong reasons, but it's on the radar nonetheless. We'll, we'll be paying attention to this one. In the U.S. and France, um, they've also signed a new military pact. And this is for greater cooperation between their special forces. Um, and the re- the rationale behind it being their anti-terrorism operations being taken by the two countries basically since uh, 9-11. With France playing a massive role in West Africa. And we've talked about that and how it's essentially them reasserting control over... A whole lot of countries that just so happen to uh, be former French colonies on the continent. Very interesting how that happened. Mm, yeah, who knows? Well, how did those French troops get there in the, all these former colonies? What? <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we have an, a pact now with France. The defense ministers of the two countries were there to sign it, I believe. And now we're supposedly going to be cooperating now on anti-terrorism operation. Actually, no, I think it goes beyond anti-terrorism. It's just a, in general, more uh, transparency between the two special forces of the two countries. So, yeah, very interesting development, nonetheless. And we'll move on back over to Africa. Uh, West Africa this time. Wait, no, 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 no. West Africa. East Africa this time, where we're going to talk South Sudan, who has vowed to maintain peace while celebrating their 10th year of independence. They broke away from um, regular Sudan about 10 years ago, if you can tell, by them celebrating 10 years of independence. Don't know why I, don't know why I bought writing that one down. I guess it slipped past me before I started recording the episode, but nevertheless, they celebrating their 10-year anniversary of being a country, and that's nice, uh, being, I remember when I was young, <laughs> uh, yeah, good for South Sudan, and we're gonna, we're gonna, what are we, what are we oh, that is a whole mistake, moving <laughs> To Russia, uh, they're aiding Myanmar with two million vaccines, uh, and we've we've really covered a whole lot of the Russian vaccine diplomacy, where they're really really succeeding in building up their soft power through the administration, and the how do I put this the licensing of the production of their vaccine, their Sputnik V vaccine. That's been distributed all around the world. Uh, fine, just a handful to note. You got South Korea, you got um, India, you have Pakistan, Afghanistan's getting it. Now Myanmar's getting it. Uh, Ukraine obviously chose not to take it, 
but Dunbass, the Donbass republics probably did. The Caucasus countries did. You had a number of countries in Africa who got it as well. And even Hungary got it, which created a rift in the EU who was squabbling with the UK over the AstraZeneca vaccine a couple months back. And so now the EU relented after making the problem what it was back when they seized the vaccines from Belgium. So you have vaccine diplomacy being played very well by Russia and to the point now where countries are asking for it rather than them having to push it and try to sell it. You have countries who have chosen to take it instead. And by take it, I mean buy it. They're not stealing it. Unless they are, in which case, wow. They must really want it. But excellent vaccine diplomacy by the Russians. And two million are now going to Myanmar. Which I can only imagine is going to be very much appreciated by the country who's in a bit of a crisis right now. They're currently putting the the leader of the National League of Democracy Party on trial for treason and election fraud, basically. And we'll see the results of that and if they warranted the military taking control of the country. And I've stressed, and I'll stress it more briefly this time, that they have to bring their A-game with the evidence or they're going to screw over their country for a very long time. That's my firm opinion, and I think it's right. I, I, I think it's right because, you know, you can't just take control. You can't just send in the military to take control of a country and not have a good reason for that. So, we'll see how things develop there. But good vaccine diplomacy by Russia. Uh, to Russia's west, however, you have the EU. And they have vowed to never accept a two-state solution in Cyprus. And for those who don't know, Cyprus is the island just south of Turkey. They're just south of Turkey, and they're split in two. Because back in the day, Turkey had actually invaded the island, and they didn't leave. But now you have Cyprus and the Islamic Republic of Cyprus. Is that? Yeah, I believe. So, there's two countries on this island, essentially. And... The EU vows to never accept a two-state solution to Cyprus. So basically, the status quo is being upheld, upheld, I should say. And we'll see where that goes, because, I don't know, Turkey's, Turkey's trying to expand their influence, and maybe Cyprus could be a good target. I don't know, I mean, it's an, it's an island. It's an island that's just south of their country. It could allow them to project power much better throughout the eastern Mediterranean, which is another one of the regions that they're trying to assert influence over. I know they're building up their naval assets, which has gone a lot more quietly than, say, the Chinese naval buildup, but Turkey's building up its navy as well at the same time that they're turning Istanbul uh, into an island, effectively, by building a second canal uh, through the city. Canal Istanbul. So Turkey's, Turkey's making some pretty big moves. 
And a lot of them are going under people's radar, com flying completely under people's radar. Um, people who aren't, you know, super into geopolitics, that is. But I'd imagine one of these days, they're going to do something that's going to grab a lot of people's attentions. And it's going to catch people off guard. But we will have the benefit of having watched the development. And we will be able to take all that clout for ourselves. <laughs> but we'll keep our eyes on that turkey and see what they and the EU do with regards to Cyprus. Because at this point, I don't think Cyprus, the country, is going to be able to do much by themselves. It's going to take a response from somebody militarily powerful to kick off um, the Turks, the Turkish who are living on the island, or to assimilate the northern Repub the northern Cyprus, uh, into a bigger Cyprus, uh, rather than just two states in de facto, but not actually recognized as being a two state solution. Turkey wants the two state solution. Because that would legitimize Northern Cyprus as being a thing, which the EU and Cyprus, you know, regular Cyprus, uh, they don't want that. So, we'll, we'll see who wins out on this issue. And last but not least, we have the UK, who will be officially lifting the vast majority of its COVID-19 lockdown measures and restrictions this week. So... We'll see if that gives them a relative advantage in terms of the relative power of nations, uh, particularly over the EU, who's uh, currently distracted in their southeast with the Balkans and Cyprus. So, we'll see where things go moving forward, and we're going to talk now about the Kyrgyz-Tajik border skirmish. And we'll get to that in just a minute. And we're back to talk about the Tajik-Kyrgyz border, border skirmish. Okay. The Kyrgyz-Tajik border skirmish. Um, yeah, let's get into it. So last week, the border patrols of both Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan um, started shooting at each other. Um, yeah, that's that's not good. And the skirmish left one dead and one wounded, both of which being on the Kyrgyzstan side, um, at least according to the account given by the Tajiks, which omitted their own potential losses, so we don't quite know how many on the Tajik side were injured or wounded, but I'd imagine uh, that some of them probably were at the very least wounded. So, Tajikistan justified their guards shooting um, by basically claiming that Kyrgyzstan and its border patrol had illegally crossed the border. And this is a region, specifically the region around Tajikistan's Devashtish region. Uh, Devashtik? There we go. Devashtik. Their Devashtik district. Um is where they claim that the Kyrgyzstani border patrol crossed the border illegally, and they went on to say that they did so to steal their horses. Um, yeah, steal their horses. Meanwhile, the Kyrgyzstan side um, 
they they're speaking oh goodness specifically their country's national security committee there we go Kyrgyzstan's national security committee had claimed that their guards were patrolling the border when they were suddenly attacked by Tajikistan's border patrol and that there were dead and wounded on the Tajik side so their claim is that people were hurt on the Tajik side the Tajiks claim that uh, only the Kyrgyz side were hurt and of course there's one man dead so you can see the escalation here in their border in their border skirmish we have talked about their border conflict and this is the second time we're bringing it up now because the last time it was because of um, a clash that was started over a disagreement between the two countries over who owned the water there was a small border town and it was split between the Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan's uh, residents and they the two local sides got into an argument uh, over who was going to get the water from the local well and it escalated so much that the militaries were called in and they started shooting at one another so that's just one escalation and now we have another where they're shooting their border patrols are shooting each other now so in essence their their border skirmish is even higher in terms of the intensity of the combat than even India and China right now or India and, and Pakistan for that matter cuz they're shooting each other these two are this close they're this close you can't see it my my fingers are uh, an atom apart so to speak they're this close to being in an open yet undeclared state of war with one another i mean what else would you call border patrols that sh basically shoot on sight and the military is getting called in whenever there's a local disagreement over water and then the military is promptly shooting at one another when they meet up. They're that close to being in an open, yet undeclared, state of war. And what does that mean for either one of these countries? And what does that mean for the, the region that they're in at large? It means destabilization. And it means they're open for foreign interference is what it means. But it also means um, suffering for the people living there. Because these aren't really big countries. So what happens uh, in one part of your country can very easily spread to you. Granted, they're both in the mountains. But they're small. So it's not too hard to get around within them. Uh, and get from one part of the country to another. Especially with the Belt and Road creating infrastructure where there previously wasn't infrastructure which is probably going to enable movements of military assets and civilians that previously wasn't possible in say the Soviet era so sort of a geopolitical side effect of the Belt and Road not that I'm going to blame the Chinese for causing this but it's definitely something to look into and keep a sort of keep tabs on.
that infrastructure enables movement and movement enables well maneuvering during war and that's uh, sort of an interesting thing within this whole situation and the last time we talked about these two we talked about the potential for Russia to get involved um, in a similar fashion to the way they got involved in the Caucasus where the two sides would be allowed to fight it out that's how they did with the Caucasus let them fight it out let them exhaust themselves and then Russia steps in mediates a peace when one side feels like they're about to lose and they strong arm the other side into uh, accepting the peace. And then they walk in with a couple thousand peacekeepers, completely outdoing anything that the local militaries could really fight back against. So, and then the peacekeepers just uh, stick around for a while. Or in the case of Georgia, you fight a war, you need to go to war with Russia itself and get occupied. That's. <laughs> That's what happened to poor little Georgia, and then they got split up into a number of smaller republics. Well, smaller republics were allowed to break away from them, uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. So, they lost territory in the, in the process, and they are still, now, within the Russian yoke. So we'll see now if Russia does something similar, should this border conflict escalate into war, like we saw in the Caucasus. Because, um, because one, the, the, they're shooting at each other. It's not, the war in the Caucasus sort of just happened very, very suddenly. Alright, there was probably a build-up, but the build-up wasn't border patrols shooting at each other. Um, and local towns getting into it over who had the water. Um, so we have already a more intense situation here in the lead up to what could be a conflict and Russia has military bases in both of these countries already so the logistics are already there in place for Russia to send in a couple thousand peacekeepers peacekeepers yeah to settle the situation and Whereas in the Caucasus, they only had a military presence in Armenia, if I'm not mistaken. But it was nearby. So, the Russians could step in in the event of a war here. And they would really just sit on it and force them to play nice. While effectively roping them into a tighter orbit around Russia itself. Uh, by occupying them. Which would give them significant uh, control over Central Asia. That in combination with their military presence in Kazakhstan effectively locks off any Chinese incursion, any potential military incursion, mind you, into, say, Central Asia. Which would then force China to look elsewhere for expansion. My, my guess that they'll go to Africa, really. Uh, with the exception of the Belt and Road, the main one, which is through Central Asia into Europe. But I imagine the Chinese will probably be forced to focus more on their African efforts than to, say, try to expand influence in Central Asia in the event that Russia did to Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan what they did to the Caucasus. 
that depends on a war between these two, but war between these two looks more likely, especially as these border skirmishes continue and they get closer and closer to an undeclared state of war. Uh, again, these border patrols just started shooting at one another because they felt that the other side had crossed the border. They're not going to stop patrolling the border, which means the shootings probably aren't going to stop because the mishaps probably aren't going to stop. There's no like real demarcation of where the border is, and there's no agreement on where the border is either. So there's no... There's nothing really to stop this from happening, especially since the political will isn't there. Um, we may see conflict. And that conflict can set off a, a chain reaction that ultimately ends in Russian peacekeepers. But we'll have to see how this goes. We'll really have to see how it goes. But now we get on to the big, big, big boy segment of today... And that is the economic collapse in Lebanon. Now, Lebanon is a troubled country, and they've been especially troubled as of late. And they've been in a depression since October of 2019, when it was uh, first recognized that the country was in a crisis. Which, more likely than not, means that the problems that caused the crisis um, were around and were in play for long before it. But everything's come to a head now as they have entered into depression territory. Their currency has lost somewhere between 80 to 90% of its value as a result of the rampant inflation that's really taken control of the country's economic system and made life unlivable. We talked about back when I think the last time I really I really talked about Lebanon itself. Um, we talked about in passing how the inflation had caused tuition prices to rise, um, out of reach of most people who would be attending the colleges. These were sort of their bet better tier colleges, so. The price rose faster than people could afford to pay, so they just couldn't go. Uh, it's not like here where you just take out a loan and you go into debt to go to college. They at least try to be able to pay before they go. But that was sort of the last time we really talked about Lebanon itself, rather than just referring to it in while talking about something else. But... The currency's lost 80 to 90% of its value. Um, there was even talk that France or the IMF would have to come bail them out. And to top it all off, it's still getting worse because the crisis hasn't bottomed out yet. It's, uh, the economy's still in freefall, really. And inflation is still on the rise. And it's gotten so bad now that there's talk of potential state failure and even another civil war and i'll say that in some ways the last one never really ended given its immensity of its complexity it was a really really complicated civil war 
uh, that put the Spanish Civil War to shame, despite the country being smaller. But um, that was it, that was a mess. They managed to patch it over, but as the situation gets worse, there's a chance that they devolve back into yet another civil war. Um, and now then there was just last year that massive explosion back in I believe August that looked like a nuke went off in the in the middle of the city. It was ridiculous to watch. Um, blew out the windows of basically everything. Now, naturally, neither none of what I have just brought up has painted the country in a very good light. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, given the current and deepening crisis there, I felt like, as it goes on and looks like it's going to continue to go on, I wanted to talk about the potential geopolitical implications for such a rapid and thorough breakdown. Uh, and that's without a state failure, mind you. And this is assuming that it still holds together. And that is, my that leads me to my belief that neighboring powers will seek to use this crisis in Lebanon to expand their influence here. And I have France, Turkey, Iran, and Israel all being at the top of that list, um, with Russia, China, Syria, and Saudi Arabia being strong, plausible contenders who may also potentially get involved uh, as well, but depending on the circumstance and whether or not it suits their interest, so they're conditional. Lately, when talking about the geopolitics of the Middle East, I talked about Iran and their growing sphere of influence. They've really emerged as sort of the big winner over, from the past uh, 20 to 30 years of geopolitics in the Middle East, especially as the United States pulls out now. And the Iranians had put themselves on the winning side of almost every major conflict in the region. Um... They put themselves on the side of the Houthis, and the Houthis just kicked Saudi Arabia out of Yemen. And they'll probably win in Yemen, given time. So they put themselves on the side of the Houthis. They put themselves on the side of the Assad government in Syria, who's now doing cleanup measures to take control over as much of the country now as they can with, you know certain foreign countries, namely the U.S., still holding pieces of land, so they can't really get those back. They put themselves on the side of Assad, who's winning the Syrian civil war, and it's coming to a close. They put themselves on the side of both of those conflicts. They put themselves on the side of the Russians, really, and the Russians have sort of cleaned up ISIS. Um... Their involvement really helped speed up the collapse of the ISIS caliphate. Iran was kind of cooperative, but not too cooperative. They didn't like. They didn't really put their full backing behind ISIS, and that was a smart move. They didn't help ISIS too much. They just uh, accepted that it existed, and traded oil because they needed oil. 
well, well, no, no, no. They were buying oil from ISIS. That's what's happening. So they put themselves on the winning side of every major conflict in the Middle East of consequence. The Houthis, they now have influence in Yemen through the Houthis. They have propped up the new government in Iraq. They put themselves on that side of the equation. Uh, and they now have strong influence in Iraq. They've backed the Assad government in Syria. So they now have Syria as a part of their sphere of influence. They stayed out of the Caucasus. They stayed out of Afghanistan. Alright. And they're backing the... They're backing the Palestinians to a lesser degree. Um, in Israel, and Gaza. And you can see that their persistence throughout all these ages... All these ages, all these decades... And all the conflicts they fought with Israel without necessarily being wiped out makes them a sound geopolitical investment for the Iranians who are opposed to Israel. They've put themselves on the winning side, or at at the very least, they've managed to not be on the losing side on all these conflicts, and it's made them the big winner of the Middle East geopolitics and sort of the premier regional power is what it's looking like right now. Definitely a rising power in the Middle East right now, uh, amidst the other rising power that is Turkey and the established power of Arabia and Russia. So Iran has really reshaped the region towards themselves. And I have more often than not included Lebanon within that sphere of influence. Uh, and the recent crisis between Israel and the Palestinians, where they were fighting Hamas, and all these rockets started getting fired at them from all these different countries. Uh, they were based in all these different countries. You had rockets being fired from Lebanon, Syria, uh, and Jordan at Israel. And I said that that marked... Um, that marked, one, the expansion of the Iranian sphere of influence into Jordan, and a uh, a clarification that, yes, Lebanon is also a part of that sphere of influence, but um, there was a missile attack that was launched from Syria at Israeli targets um, after Israel had done something to Iran. I forget what exactly it was that they had done to Iran. Um... But rockets were fired from Syria to Israel, and I said that that had marked the, an alliance between Syria and Iran, if for no reason other than an anti-Israel alliance, which, again, strengthens Iran's position in the Middle East. So with Iran being the premier power here, and Lebanon being a natural part not a, not a natural part, but being a key part of their sphere of influence, I put them at the top of the list for countries to intervene should the crisis get worse here. Uh, that, that's why I put them at the top of this list. However, they are not. Iran is not the only player here, and they're definitely not the only player of consequence here. Um, 
I have said that as this economic crisis worsens, countries will seek to expand their influence. That's going to mean more than just Iran, because as Lebanon's crisis worsens and its internal stability is weakened by it, at least temporarily, depressions, uh, when you try to intervene in them, they get longer, but as the crisis gets worse, um, its internal stability gets weaker, it could shake off Iran's relatively loose foothold in the country, and that's relative to the other countries within their sphere of influence, uh, probably weaker, it's probably one of the weakest, uh, with the sole exception of Yemen, um, who's far away, uh, relative to everyone else that Iran has included in its sphere of influence. So, you have a relatively weak footing here that could get shaken off by the crisis, and that'll open the door to other countries. Most notably, uh, on my list of countries who may intervene is France. Now, France has been reasserting its presence in damn near all of its former colonies um, in Africa and the Middle East, at the very least. They haven't, they haven't gone too far past Africa and the Middle East into, say, trying to assert their presence in Vietnam or anything like that, or, or, or Quebec, they haven't done that, but they're definitely reasserting themselves here, and that puts them right underneath Iran for countries who may get involved. I mentioned earlier that there was talk that the IMF and France may have to bail out Lebanon um, from its crisis, and I brought up France because they were seemingly willing to at least try to do so. Not necessarily. I don't think they could bail out Lebanon entirely. But they would likely do something to which would give them influence in the region. And in their former colony, which Lebanon used to be. A colony of France. Um, this is after World War I. It was over and France and Britain carved up the territory of the Ottoman Empire, which had collapsed. During the war, France is expanding its influence. Lebanon's a former colony. France is making aggressive moves um, here, especially since the Beirut explosion of last year, which is when France really, really started um, being proactive in their policy and politics towards Lebanon. So we could see them get involved here in a non-military way, mind you, because West Africa is getting a whole different uh, side of French reassertion uh, into their region. They get, the, they get the stick, is basically what they get, whereas Lebanon is sort of being given the carrot. That's what I see here. A very different approach, but an expansionist um, influence-building approach nonetheless. So that's France. But then there's Turkey. Um, Turkey who hasn't exactly been asserting themselves as much as they've been sort of probing the area around themselves to see sort of where they can insert themselves. Like, what issues can they sort of just step in on and behave as though they had significant influence sort of 
fake it till they made it sort of thing. They tried to do so in the Caucasus and almost succeeded had it not been for Russia brokering the peace and sending in thousands of peacekeepers to assert control there. So Turkey was effectively kicked out of that conflict and out of the peace, uh, the peacemaking process as well. They had ejected from the Caucasus wholesale, basically. They do have influence in Libya. They were forced to uh, back down from their expansionism in the eastern Mediterranean by the French Navy. So we have a, a rivalry between them and France in the eastern Med. However, with this being sort of a land uh, issue rather than a naval issue, you could see Turkey use the difference in logistical capability to assert themselves here uh, with better, greater ease than, say, France would. Again, they're not asserting themselves as much as they're seeing where they can get in where they fit in. And so basically Turkey's trying to expand their influence beyond the various mercenary groups that they have operating throughout the Middle East, um, of which Syria, Lebanon, uh, during its civil war, Lebanon, the Caucasus, and Libya were all host to those mercenaries who in private, oh, I've begun calling the Janissaries, the new Janissaries. We'll, we'll see if Turkey starts referring to them that way, but the new Janissaries have been operating in all these different theaters. So what Turkey's trying to do now is assert themselves in a non-military way because they keep getting shut down every time they try military. So they're, they're committed to the expansion and they're sort of adjusting tactics now at least until they're strong enough or feel that they're strong enough to go in and assert themselves militarily wherever they feel. And that'll probably we'll probably see that happen in the eastern Mediterranean when they've when they've satisfied themselves with their naval buildup and that'll probably come with a major political crisis where they destroy someone's navy. Probably the Greeks or the French and they'll probably assert total control over Cyprus. That's my estimation anyway. But they're probing. And they're looking for places to expand influence. And Lebanon is right there on their border. So as the situation gets worse in Lebanon, Turkey, I feel, will try to expand their influence here. And so long as, you know, they don't, Lebanon doesn't, fall into civil war or do they don't have state failure, Turkey will use the non-mercenary means to get involved and build their influence here, even if it's very, very subtle, which is sort of the way they've been building influence lately anyway. Subtly, very quietly. Um, done, not attracting too much attention to themselves uh, in spite of their failures. So, I, I see them I see them trying their hand in Lebanon as well. Then there's Israel. Now on any other day, that Israel would be a no-brainer. They would uh indefinitely try to involve themselves in Lebanon. Uh, they don't want Hamas to expand. <clears throat> Excuse me. They don't want Hamas to expand. 
they are religious and ideological rivals with Iran, and they border Lebanon. And Lebanon is within Iran's sphere of influence. So anything Iran does, Israel will try to counter in some way, especially if Iran is doing something on Israel's border. However, though, as mentioned with the Israel-Palestine conflict and Hamas being a real pain in Israel's ass, um, whose the Iranians have put themselves on the side on, Israel might be a bit preoccupied at the moment. Um, so dealing, again, they're preoccupied dealing with Hamas forces in Gaza, mind you. And so that, that means that they might not be able to give Lebanon the necessary attention to be a consequential force in the country, um, especially as countries will try to expand their influence here. And that's despite being closer to it than everyone else other than Turkey, who also has a land border with Lebanon. So, Israel will probably end up taking a back seat in this competition for influence in Lebanon as the situation in Lebanon worsens. And again, this is all without state failure or civil war. If any of those happen... Um, the situation could change dramatically and Israel may find themselves being forced to muster up the attention span um, to deal with the situation on their border. But we're assuming the not war path for this little speculation segment. Um, but those are the primary powers that I see getting involved in Lebanon. And from there, we'll sort of transition to the talking about the secondary competitors um those being russia china saudi arabia and slash or syria now i believe the involvement of these countries are all likely well they're all possible i should say they're all possible they're all probable uh, but they are all also likely to be conditional highly conditional and so I'll break them down one by one. Syria, I believe, may get involved if, one, the operational cost is low, and two, they have asserted enough control over their own country to feel comfortable with going into another country. Uh, the operational cost has to be low because they're still preoccupied with their own civil war right now. So they can't afford uh, something too expensive, especially going into a country that isn't even their own, when they don't have control over their country right now. So, they're getting close to it, though. They're getting close to ending their civil war. So it depends on how they feel, and whether or not they're satisfied enough with what they've, with what they've got to start investing in some, a bit of an aggressive foreign policy. So, well, those are sort of the conditions I see that need to be met before we may see Syrian involvement in Lebanon. China may get involved if they see an opportunity to expand their Belt and Road Initiative. And I would imagine that poor little Lebanon, who is on track towards a very, very uh, unpleasant bankruptcy, 
will be more than interested in massive sums of money coming from China to build roads, airports, rail lines, and docks, which would employ their people and give them something to work on that isn't shooting at each other. It would put some money in their pockets and sort of ease the strain of the depression, so to speak. And would put some hard assets into Lebanon that would potentially allow them to put some worth and value back into their currency, which would help with the situation. So all of that would probably be good for Lebanon in the event that they joined the Belt and Road. Um, we're really starting to see the geopolitical influence that the Belt and Road is giving to China just through its existence as a project that countries can join. And it's reaching into the Middle East now with Iran signing on. So we're, we can talk about it now. Um, but, but the deal would have to be... The Lebanon would have to accept the deal first in order for China to get involved in a meaningful way. And that would be primarily financial, as most Belt and Road projects are. And in the future, however, if Lebanon couldn't pay off the debt, which uh, I don't think they would be able to if they're in a depression already, if they're not able to pay off the debt, uh, they'll probably hand over an asset to the Chinese. Probably a, a port or something like of the sorts uh, on the Mediterranean coast. And that would expand the string of pearls into the Mediterranean, which would give China the ability to project power into the Eastern Med. I'd imagine Turkey would be um, a bit upset about that, especially if China had started making moves to curb Turkey's influence there. But that's a possibility that may happen if Lebanon goes the route of the Belt and Road Initiative. So, we'll keep our eyes on that. But, those are sort of the conditions I see that would need to be met for China to get involved. Meanwhile, we have the Saudis. The Saudis may get involved if... And I, I, I'm sorry I keep saying if, but the involvement of all these countries are, again likely to be highly conditional, but uh, bear with me, um, the Saudis may get involved if, um, you know, actually, I don't, I don't know too much about what the, uh, the Arabians' ambitions are in their region right now, um, you know, I, uh, I, uh, just realized that maybe, what would make them get involved in Lebanon, what, what would compel them to do so? They have the ability to. They have the money. They're right there. They're na almost neighboring their country. But would they? Huh. Well, it is conditional. So I guess if Iran or Turkey started doing a little too well expanding their influence in Lebanon, then we might see Saudi Arabia get involved. And that involvement would likely be using a, a wombo combo of mercenaries, money, and jihadist extremists to stir up trouble. And that would be really just to deny influence of other countries rather than to expand their own. That's sort of the geostrategic position I see Arabia in, which is where they're 
in influence denial mode, uh, to which the Iranians have managed to bypass um, by exploiting everywhere the Americans have been and cleaning up the mess after them before uh, Arabia could do anything about it. But Lebanon wouldn't be like Syria or Iraq because America's not there. So would Arabia's anti-influence operations be more effective there? Who knows? Uh, they would definitely have the jihadist extremists in the region that they could inject. And they definitely have the money. And if Turkey has shown us anything, the mercenaries are there too. So, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on that. I see the Saudis being the least likely to get involved. Well, but their involvement is still potentially there. So I didn't want to sort of leave them out. But they are the least likely to get involved. And the second least likely to get involved here is Russia. Now, Russia may get involved if the crisis caused social developments in Lebanon that posed a threat, a direct threat, to either Syria, Russia's ally, or the Caucasus. Beyond that, I don't see the Russians getting involved that much either, as their geostrategic ambitions in the Middle East are largely confined to the Caucasus and Syria. So unless, again, something directly threatened Syria and or the Caucasus, and that threat came out of Lebanon itself, then Russia would keep its attention firmly elsewhere and they'd be content to keep it there. Um, so I guess really that makes Russia the least likely to intervene here uh, than even Saudi Arabia. So... But those are all the conditional powers as well, whose in involvement is potential, and it's probable, but conditional. So we'll keep our eyes on the conditions to see if um, they change. But as you can see, I have essentially laid out my belief that the situation in Lebanon will inadvertently turn into a crossroads of the various geopolitical interests of its neighbors. And I hope I've done a half-decent job of explaining what some of those interests are, and as far as the conditional powers go, what some of the conditions that would need to be met are to uh, push them towards intervention of some sort here, here in Lebanon. And we'll keep our eyes on the developments in Lebanon, because I don't think their neighbors are going to leave them alone. Uh, it's a sad thing to observe, but I feel it's a true thing as well. Especially with France, Turkey, and Israel, not Israel, France, Turkey, and Iran all looking to expand their influence. And Lebanon is, again, a crossroads of various geopolitical interests right now. So we'll keep our eyes on this. The Middle East is, the Middle East is a changed region, uh, geopolitically anyway. And they've continuously got a whole lot more interesting. And you know what? I appreciate it. Um, we'll, we'll hope things get better for Lebanon. But for the meantime, we will watch how things develop there. And we'll watch how things change. And that's all we can really do, really. 
you know, unless we're in the halls of government, which I am not. But that is all I have for you today, and I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our nice and lengthy speculation session on the situation in Lebanon, and hopefully I've conveyed uh, why that situation has caught my attention so much and why I see it as being so interesting. But that being said, as we can see, the world is changing. And as you can see, we're going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Hi Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. Mm-hmm.